0: Hi, I'm meeting Amy Chang, CEO of Campero. Hi, Amy. So nice to have you here. Hi. How are you? Good, Good to be here. Can you tell us, please, what Campero is? Campero teaches kids
1: engineering and programming with a focus on 21st-century skills. So, 21st-century skills are things like creativity, design thinking, and um, teamwork. So, these are the things that we focus on um, mm-hmm. while using engineering and programming as the medium for children six to 12 years old.
0: Okay, 6 to 12 years old. And how intense are these
1: programs? I would say they're very intense, but light and casual. So, um, sort of like the vibe of San Francisco, where we have, um, we're building new things and changing the world, but we're doing it in a casual way, and that's the way we approach it with kids. Because kids want to have fun, and we make it fun for them to learn how to program or um, play with engineering tools and actually build things.
0: And so what's the response? How are parents reacting to it and how many uh, students do you have already? Well right now we have, um, we're very early stage still, we're
1: super beta um, and we have huge demand. Every parent um, tells me, oh my gosh, I wish that I found out about you earlier. Mm -hmm. Every person that I meet that's our age tells me, I wish I had this when I was younger. So it's been a huge um, response and our biggest challenge was building enough classes and enough workshops to support all the demand out there. And that's what we're doing right now. So where are your um, workshops taking place right now? Right now
0: we're um, around
1: the Bay Area um, in San Francisco because we're based here, and San Jose because that's where all the kids are. And we'll start opening some things in East Bay and in the peninsula as we get more and more demand.
0: And are you planning to go national-wide? Absolutely. I mean, the goal is to go national and global because I think that schools are
1: not necessarily equipped to teach this right now. There's some schools that are doing it, but I think that we can move much faster. Um, But right now, just in the Bay Area alone, there's over 100,000 kids that are eligible for our programs. So we have our work cut out for us just right here. How do you find the teachers? Um, That's a challenge. So um, there are two ways of finding teachers. You can find really awesome people, and then you can find awesome people that want to learn the topic. So just like... Every parent wants their kids to learn programming and engineering. Almost every young person between 20 and 30 wants to learn engineering and programming right now. So we sort of look at the way that we train our teachers as a way to say this is a first step in learning um, more about programming. So we have sort of this unlimited base of really cool people that we can draw from to teach kids.
0: Your journey with Camp started in Houston. Yeah, And you've had experience for of uh, 12 years of working for uh, specialty specialty camps industry, right? Yeah, so um, Camparoo, what we started in Houston, what we went
1: through Y Combinator with and what I am right now is completely different. So we started... Um, yeah. I, I, yeah, tell us about the beginnings. So. Yeah, sure. I started a summer technology camp um, mm-hmm. and in America camps are these one-week specialty program, So it's not necessarily sleeping away in the woods. And um, we taught engineering and programming. And through that experience, I thought, wouldn't it be great for parents to have a one-stop shop to find all sorts of different camps? Because I knew my kids that were coming to tech camp were going to soccer and they're going to dance and they're going to karate. So I wanted to make a platform to make this work. Um, What happened was that it was really, really great. And the challenge wasn't in uniting all the different programs, but it was understanding your child. So that's the trick that we figured out, that most parents don't know what's best for their kids. And um, once we figured that out, we also realized that it's a huge seasonal business and we were always fighting seasonality. We were always trying to do year-round programs after school programs, but the big chunk of money was in the summer. So the summer I thought about pivoting and changing and looking at the different opportunities available And what every parent wants for their kids is for them to grow up and be really great um, in the workforce. And what that means is 21st century skills, engineering, and programming. So now we get to give parents something that they need and we get to adapt to every single type of child there is. So now we're directly working with kids.
0: What interests me a lot is that um, you started with one problem that you knew that needs to be solved um, um, with relation to your experience, 12 years experience, and then you transitioned. And so um, what do you think that the the initial problem was not there anymore? Absolutely not. I think the problem is super big and parents
1: are definitely um, having this pain And it's one that holds dear to my heart because I had parents actually come to me and say, are you not doing this anymore? I wanted, I need you. Um, But at the other end of the spectrum, it's understanding what race you want to run. Because as a founder, it's a business opportunity and it's a life journey. And for me, it sounds very Zen and California-esque to say that it's a life journey. But for me, it really, really compelled me to help kids find who they were, and interest them at a young age. Because I think the earlier you can spark their interest, the more exciting they can become as adults. And the earlier you find out as a kid what you would like, you can start focusing on those kinds of things. And for most people, they don't ever figure that out. A lot of people don't do it till college, or they don't do it until they retire from their jobs. And if you're 10 years old, and you have the world literally at your fingertips with a cell phone, then you can do anything, and you have access to everything. So with Camp Roo now, we can give kids that opportunity to get that spark and to give them that freedom to express themselves and build something and say, yes, you have the tools available to you in your fingertips that every other developer in the world has. What can you do with that today? And what can you do with that five years from now? And what can you do with that 10 years from now? And that's what's super exciting for me, and that's what drives me now. And so once I realigned... Um, this, I realized that what I'm doing now is exactly where I wanted to go. It just took me a little while to get there.
0: I'm trying to imagine how actually kids can code. At that age, can you, can you just let me and everyone else know a little bit more? What so are they actually do- doing there? And what are they supposed to learn by the end of the course? Yeah, so a couple of things. When you're six, your fingers are about this small. So you actually
1: can't type. And then when you're 10, you're pretty good at typing, but you haven't learned. I mean, let's face it, most kids are doing this. They're not typing. So um, from a programming standpoint, we use a lot of drag and drop um, programming, kind of like Scratch. Um, There's a system with Google's Blockly where we're taking if loops and functions, and we're grabbing it. So that's the way that we're doing it. the 12 years old enough, they want to type. They want to feel like they're actually typing computer code because it's exciting. And what we're teaching is not necessarily syntax or algorithms, but we're teaching the sense of empowerment, of excitement that you can build something. And through technology, you can build something right now, push it out to compile or you know, um, to actually push it out and refresh your page from website and see it happen. And that's hugely impactful for a kid to get instant gratification like that, especially
0: electronically. Let's go back for a little bit again to the uh, early years of your uh, startup. And can you tell us a little bit about the founder's drama? I know there was something going on. Um, There's a little bit. Um, So
1: when I started this business in Houston, it was late 2013. And it was a marketplace for kids summer camps. And actually, we launched April 2013 for that summer of 2013 and I had a business partner who had kids and because of that it was good that was an interactive um, viewpoint for children in our business Um, but it was negative because he had kids so there's two pressures there's money and family right and so I think also with communication there was some breakdown in communication and differences in the way that we saw where the business wanted to go. And I can also admit to myself that I was probably not the best at being receptive and open to listening to other people's communication at that time as well, because you have to be good at speaking and listening. And so during that time, some of these breakdowns in communication happened, and ultimately it led to um, him deciding to stop work. And if you wanted to read the Medium article, that was the two weeks of my life that was super exciting, and yet... And all the change happened? Yeah, it all happened in two or three weeks and that was a major inflection point in my life. Um, hopefully as we move forward we won't have as many dramatic moments. But I think for the, it was for the better and now I've learned and grow, um, grown from that experience to be more receptive as a listener and a communicator and um, ask questions to those who are not open to ask them,
0: express, expressing themselves. I read your article on Medium. I'm happy to share it um, here at Silicon Valley Show, so everyone can read it uh, about it a little more in detail. Um, and tell us about moving to San Francisco. Um, you already decided to move where you had that co-founder, right? Yeah. So um, during the summer of 2013,
1: we started doing exploratory trips to San Francisco, which a lot of people do. They think about, let me try to get into this startup scene. Let me see what it's all about. Is it a fit for me? So in these exploratory trips um, that we had made back and forth, we started realizing this is the place where we need to bring our startup. It absolutely needs to be there for us to learn and grow and get the resources necessary. And so we made this decision. And then we applied to Y Combinator. (laughs) And then he quit. Two weeks before Uh, you got the reply that you were approved, right? Um, Actually, a day before. So literally on Sunday night, I got an email from him that said, this is not working out, or it was actually parting ways. And then on Monday night, I got an invitation to interview with Y Combinator. So then the next 10 days was preparation for this interview. And I literally had to walk into Y Combinator knowing they don't like solo founders, especially non-technical code-writing founders, and walk in and say, hey, my co-founder decided to quit. And say that in the first five minutes, or the first, not even five minutes, the first 30 seconds of the interview. And despite all that, I think um, I was very fortunate that they let me into the program. And um, it's really one of the best things that's ever happened to me is to go into my Combinator And have that support network and be able to have the opportunity to be with everybody and learn from the best and brightest startup founders, um, both our peers and our um, mentors and advisors as well.
0: I am very curious about your experiences at Y Combinator, but also still going back to this first um, approval moment. um, How did you convince them that It's worth it That is just you and it is all so traumatic now. But still, you should have me there. I I think that has to do
1: with um, when you want something and you have to do it. I really thought that my company was going to die. And when you feel like you're faced with death, you do anything that you need to do. Mm -hmm. So I walked in there and I said, you know, I already have a technical team lined up that can handle my technical aspects. I understand this business better than most people out there. There are probably four or five other people who have small businesses that are better in this market than I am. And they're all in this Bay Area. And I think that I'm the only one that wants to build a billion dollar business or reach and make the hugest impact out of all of these people. And somehow I understand that this small little market it's not a market, it's, this is a huge market actually, but this small niche can become something great. And I think that being open and honest and expressing my vulnerabilities, not hiding anything from them, they saw that and they gave me the chance and they said, okay. And literally I walked out in the room, um, someone asked me, how do you feel about it? And I said, I have no idea how I feel. They were really mean to me, or not mean, but very hard. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. And then that evening I got the phone call and you could say the
0: rest is history. Right. You mentioned that you are so happy to have had the opportunity to be at Y Combinator. Um, so what was so amazing there? I think it's definitely
1: the people. So it's sort of like going to um, a university or some type of group where all of a sudden you're put into a group with a hundred people that are similar to yourself, but completely different. So everybody looked different. Everyone came from, I think in our batch, there was maybe 30 countries. 30 countries and 100 people. um, Different ages from 19 to 60 years old. So nobody looked the same from physical aspects. Our backgrounds were varied. We had people in biotech, in finance, like me with summer camp experience, things like that. But yet, we were all connected by this desire to change the world, which is really, really, really rare and awesome. And it's that feeling that you get. And um, it's really hard to just replicate that. And YC has been a really, um, they've been really helpful in finding those people and putting us together. And I think when you put those people together, magical things happen. And then they give
0: us some tips as well, obviously, to help us along the way. And that was the same batch as Dating Ring that is being featured on season two in the Startup podcast, right? Yeah. So you know the girls.
1: Yeah, I know the girls really well. I really like them a lot. There was a third girl that was not mentioned in the podcast that was part of the company as well.
0: And what do you think about their performance on the podcast? They are revealed so many details, sometimes not that popular details. And... Um, I guess all of this was true, right? Yeah, because absolutely. that was the point. Yeah. And what do you think about this, uh, that they agreed on it and they were so honestly telling about what hap- was happening? I think, um, number one, they're
1: super brave. It's, you know, every startup goes through ups and downs and it's not all this beautiful uh, way of presenting it in the way that we see it in press. And every startup is a mess. Um, we, we have this joke that says, how are you doing? Great, beautiful on the outside and mess on the inside. And this is a common theme that founders actually talk to each other with. And I think it's extremely brave for Lauren, the CEO of Dating Ring, to be so young and be so courageous to actually come out and say, this is my experience, and this is my experience in doing this startup, and this is where I want to take it next. So she did mention a lot of really private things that a lot of people may not express. But I think it's very courageous of her to do that. And I think for a company, um, they've decided to go a different path with it. And I think that's great. Not every company has to become a unicorn, billion-dollar company. But I think that um, it's great because just having more people speak out is important. And just to say, I'm part of startups and this is my story. Because every story is different.
0: And for sure, this is interesting to you know all of us to listen to it and... Um gives us a lot of knowledge, but what do you think about them themselves? Is it going to be for better or worse for them? For Dating Ring?
1: Yes. I don't know because um, I've never used their service, but I think it's interesting. I think that um, you definitely, there's a lot of room in the dating space um, because we're all on our phones and uh, we have online profiles. So I think that doing the in-person matching is still an art that if they were able to scale that, that's super interesting. So I think that they are definitely reaching a problem and they're solving this problem
0: and they're still doing it in New York. So more power to them. Um, let's talk a little bit about the investment aspect. Um, how did you find your first investor? That was before Y Combinator, right? Yeah, I was really lucky in that um, in Houston,
1: Texas, there's a pretty strong angel network um, that is an organized angel network. And um, my ex-university, which is um, Rice University, where I graduated from, has um, organized investment forums. So I was able to actually present at one of these forums and present in front of a number of Houston angels. And that's where my first um, few hundred dollar checks came from, from Houston. But even prior to those Houston checks, And I mentioned it in my Medium article. I actually met my first investor in Silicon Valley. I actually met it at a TechCrunch party. And I didn't know anything, so I went to these parties, and I went and networked, and I said, I have a goal of talking to 40 people today. Me and my co-founder would go, and we would just go grab business cards because we had no idea what we were doing. And through that, somehow, we convinced someone to give us our first investment. And it was a pretty good investment, and... um, I really am grateful for that person to give us that investment and really fuel the fire to move forward and um, have the confidence to raise more from Houston and then come to Y Combinator and then graduate from Y Combinator and raise more. It's it's just the confidence and the
0: experience. So it means that going to those networking events is really worth it? I don't know. Okay. (laughs) So for me, it worked out for one, right? And you only
1: need the first one. And the best way is obviously through introductions. These introductions have a higher percentage of close, but when you don't know anyone, who are you going to ask for an introduction? And so I think there's a balance of doing everything it takes, going through every intro that you know, and then going out and talking to massive amounts of people. Because by the time you talk to your 50th person, you'll get better, hopefully. (laughs) And so when I did actually end up fundraising, I looked at some of my stats, and I reviewed back, um, and I did a party, what they call party angel round after YC, and I ended up talking to about 85 people. So I took 85 meetings in a six-week period, which is a lot. And um, those were real meetings with intros, and um, I was able to close 17 of those which was a 20% rate. But it doesn't matter what your rate is because it just matters that you have 17 and the money's in the bank. It doesn't matter if you're one for one or one for one million. You just need the money. So uh, my answer is yes, it's valuable. And my answer is no, it's not valuable. So
0: it, it depends. Yes, it depends.
1: A- and it, yes is the answer. Do everything you need to do because that's, you got to just do what you need to do. And um, people will pick up on
0: that. How are you finding investors right now?
1: Now um, I'm more fortunate because I've been in San Francisco for a year and a half in the Bay Area for two years now. And I have a lot of friends that are founders and other people that um, have introduced me. And I've met some investors along the way when I wasn't looking for financing. So now um, I find it a little bit easier. But definitely after YC, um, it's going to be the easiest time to raise money of all. Everyone wants to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, now, you know, it's a little bit different, but also now we have to prove that we're a real business, which is important and cool. It doesn't matter if you raise money for a business that um, never makes money. So now we're looking at making money.
0: And how about the the law uh, things? Um, Do you have a law company that is helping you? Oh, legal. Yes, legal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I actually
1: started in Texas so I retained a firm in Austin, Texas, that was a smaller firm that could give me more personal attention to um, for my legal issues at that time. Because my co-founder left, we're getting Y Combinator, um, there was a little bit of legal. So I use them. Right now, we don't have that many legal aspects, but I think that it's important to have someone that you can refer to in, in case something like this happens, so they get all your paperwork clean. And in that situation, that was the best that could have happened to me, is that I had a local, it wasn't a local lawyer, it was one in Austin who does a lot of startups, um, but he was not in a mega major firm so he could actually hold my hand along the process for not super expensive.
0: Are you still using them or someone over here? Um, I'm still using them, but we don't have much legal right now, thank the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) You're a solo founder and you're a female solo founder. Do you feel that this is a unique feature uh, here in Silicon Valley? Uh, do you feel pretty exceptional, or not at all? Well, I feel like I'm part of—I'm the same as everyone else. Um, we all like to think we're exceptional
1: and wonderful people, um, but I think that um, being a female solo founder is no different than being a male solo founder or a female non-solo founder. Um, so. I think that there's two things. Number one, being a solo founder is difficult. This is fact. Um, Even I was talking to someone and they actually said, for your company to be investable, you actually have to be 10x better than a non-solo team. Because if you're putting bets on the table, you're gonna bet on the team versus the individual. It just is, right? You're looking at probabilities. So in that respect, yes, I have to work harder. As a female, it's just something that's new. So when people have new things, it's just unknown. So it's just about navigating and making your own way as a female. And I've actually noticed, um, I'm friends with all the other female solo founders. There's quite a lot of them. I'm friends with a lot of female founders, female CEOs and other female founders as a whole. And we experience a lot of the same things that the boys do. It's not necessarily of uh, female versus male thing, but there are definitely inherent biases for being a woman in Silicon Valley.
0: Yes, uh, so that was my another question. Do you think that it's harder to gain investment or is it maybe easier to get, to get investors invest in you? I think it's always hard to get investment. This is, and nobody
1: likes it, male or female. Um, so that is that. Um, from a standpoint of investment, It's really aligning yourself with the people that are comfortable and used to seeing women founders and successful women because this is something new. So when you have new things, you are not comfortable with them. So it's about being around people who are somewhat comfortable about them and we're still paving the way. So there's a lot of people that are just not used to it. They don't, they're not being biased against you on purpose. They just don't know.
0: So you still have less choice of investors that would... I would, I would definitely say so. I think that
1: um, everyone says that they're equally opportunistic between male and female, but when you look at the statistics, um, there's two statistics. Number one, maybe there's less percentage of women going out for these investments. But from a, that means that the percentage of funded should be like the same amount of companies that are women founded, which is not true. And then the second factor is um, previously, in the last 10 years, women were investors, girlfriends and secretaries and wives. And this is true, this is just a fact. And so if you're used to seeing women in these roles and all of a sudden you have a woman that is a CEO of a company, this is just baffling. Abnormality. Yeah, extremely, like, (laughs) extremely abnormal. And then you have all these industries that are new, right? So it used to be that tech company was this big thing that you can create. But now every company is tech enabled. So I consider myself an education company that happens to use technology. I'm not a tech company that happens to use education. And then I have friends who run tech companies, but they're really entertainment companies with technology, or they're really fashion companies using technology. So now you have an influx of unlimited companies, which are also different than what people are used to. And then you add the female on top of that. So there's just a lot of new things. And I think the valley will mature. Luckily, we move really fast here. And so I think that's going to change over time. But definitely navigating it is challenging.
0: What is your main advice for startup founders? I think definitely is to, number one, have
1: confidence because it's very important to be extremely your number one cheerleader, right? So, because if if no one else believes in it, you have to be believing in it 100x more than everybody else. So confidence is number one. The second thing is be open to ask for help and know the right questions to ask for help. And there's a fine line between asking for help and seeming needy. And that is the balance that I think about a lot is how do I ask instead of saying, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do, everything's going to hell. That is not the right way to ask a question. Of course. By saying something like, well, this is what I tried, This this is what happened. My numbers aren't where I need to be. What are your recommendations or how do you feel about some ways that I can change what I did previously. And then a good answer, I think, um, as I'm understanding, because you can ask uh, this question to 50 people, and then you have to be able to filter which of those people are giving you the right advice. Because just because um, they have more authority doesn't mean that they're giving you the right advice. I like the people who use real-life stories to answer, because with a story, there's no real or right answer. It's just a case study. So I like reading case studies. I like looking at things like that and asking for
0: questions in that respect. So asking for questions and being more confident. Absolutely. Asking the right questions to the right people. Looking at your startup right now, is there anything that you would do differently? I mean, every day, right? Every so day. I
1: mean, I mean, we you, you know, you make mistakes all the time to the point where you're like well, 90% of what I'm going to do is going to be bad anyway, so we're just going to keep on doing 100 until we get that 10 that's good, right? If we're lucky, it's 90%. So um, all the time, um, I look back and think, oh, wow, we made that mistake. Oh, wow, we made that mistake. Oh, wow, we made that mistake. And the important thing about doing that is saying not to dwell on them, but to say, OK, moving forward, let's reevaluate this project. Like Projects that don't go well, initiatives that don't go well, you cannot plan for them to go well. But there might be some signs early on that next time you do it, you can look out for those signs. So one example would be um, I hired um, a contractor to help me build um, an app last year as part of um, our marketplace, and we never released this app, and we spent um, a little bit of money because my engineers- How much? Um, probably like less than a hundred thousand, but more than ten thousand, right? So somewhere around this, it's like a decent amount of money, and. Um, This guy was highly recommended. He had just sold his company to a pretty large company, and two of my friends had worked with him in the past. But I didn't do that much due diligence on beyond that. I just trusted those two people blindly because sometimes we do that. And this person didn't end up delivering what he said he was going to deliver. And then when I called him out on it, he didn't. Just couldn't deliver it and then I actually had to finally get the code from him and ask a third party to get the code from him and we got it and it was completely not usable mm-hmm. and we had to rewrite the whole thing pretty much
0: so you lost money and time exactly and time is the most important thing yes especially in the early stage right? absolutely
1: absolutely and um, and also this waste of time of emotions right because you can yes. only go I think the most important thing is
0: your personal sanity because time continues. Yes, I've I've been through the same situation exactly when we outsourced something and week by week, we were waiting for results. It was not there. It was supposed to be the next week and the next week. And that's when I lost a lot of my health. Yeah. (laughs) And I can imagine it was the same for you. Exactly, exactly.
1: And so... That was one example, but there's countless examples. Every startup founder wishes we could go back in time and make this perfect line to go up and to the right, but instead it's like this, right? So we'll I make mistakes. Hopefully we get out of this, you know, hopefully the general movement is upward and to the right.
0: What is your goal for Camp Peru right now? What are you mostly working on to achieve? What's the next step and what's the bigger step as well? I think right now um, it's just to get more members. So we
1: look at it from a subscriber basis of a Camparoo member on a monthly basis. So number one is getting more kids as members, treating um, engineering and programming as an extracurricular activity that they identify with. So a lot of kids say, I'm in dance for five years. I'm in karate for five years. I want to be with Camparoo for five years. So this is the step that I'm going for. Um, And the second, so that's in person. And then I also think what's interesting for this year is to start thinking about ways that we can educate kids online. Because that is still widely unknown. As we all know, what eight-year-old is gonna sit at their computer and do a Coursera course? Right. Right. I mean, 28-year-olds can't even do this. Why do you think an eight-year-old will? So I think there's some interest um, in technology and education because kids love devices. They love watching YouTube. You know, ever since they're eight months old. They, they love YouTube.
0: I even have a friend's daughter. She is 10 months old. And when she sees my Apple Watch, she's already all into it. And, and the phone as well, she's 10 months. 10 months old. Yeah, yeah, they can't walk. Yes. But they're playing with these devices. So I think there's something unique in
1: being able to educate this generation who grew up with literally the world at their fingerprints right? They're 10 months old, they have this device, and they know how to navigate to YouTube. They can already learn it too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just for us to figure out how do we teach this? How do we harness this curiosity? And how do we not make it so it's negative? A lot of these parents are saying, hey, I'm not going to give you screen time until you're a certain age. But why would you restrict screen time? It's just like saying, hey, let's not use the refrigerator to cool our foods. Let's only buy things that don't go bad, right? This is silly if we think about this. So why would we reduce the amount of time kids have with a technology tool in their hands? It's just about how do we change that into a learning experience. And so I get to study this. This is so cool. This is my personal path of saying, I can figure this out. And this year, we'll try to do some type of online interactive, online-offline blend of figuring out what is that first step for eight or nine-year-olds to keep them engaged online. Because I do realize that um, in-person is number one, and that is what we are focused on in person, but not everybody can get to us in person. So if you can't get to us, what is that online global um, denominator that we can have for everybody, that can even the base? And that's what we get to figure out this year.
0: Thank you so much. It's so great speaking to you today and having you here. And we encourage everyone to check out your website. That's Camperoo.com, right? Cool. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking about it. Thanks so much.